Hi, I'm James, and this is James Explores the New Mutants, an issue-by-issue exploration of Marvel's comic book series, The New Mutants. Welcome to episode 30, entitled Legion, Nelf Said, in which I'll examine issue number 26. Please stay tuned. So before we dive into issue number 26 of The New Mutants, entitled Legion... Uh, I do want to quickly review our creative team, and it hasn't changed. Uh, we have Claremont writing, Zinkevich doing the art in total. We have Glynis Wynn on, as our colorist, and letters by Orzachewski. Editor-in-chief is Jim Shooter, and the line editor is still Ann Nascenti. Now, one thing this podcast obviously does is just really focuses in on New Mutants. Occasionally there's some crossover where we deal with other X-related lines, i.e. X-Men, maybe down the road, certainly down the road, X-Factor, but that's brief and only when there's intersection that is necessary, like it, it requires us to explore these issues to help us understand them better. So what we don't see are things that occur outside of this book. Like, for example, when X-Force is uh, is launched. That title... So that's done against... Really without Claremont's knowledge. And certainly not... (laughs) No consent on his part. He was not interested in it. In fact, he was out to dinner to discuss his work on X-Men and uh, the New Mutants with Anne Nesetti when and Nascenti broke the news about X-Force being launched, about Jean Grey being brought back to life. Jim Shooter had told both him and John Bryan, uh, Bryan uh, that Jean was dead. There was no bringing her back. And he, he does bring her back. He, there's a, this, this, if, if you've read X-Fact, you know that Jean comes back. She wasn't really dead. She was just sitting at the bottom of Jamaica Bay. The Phoenix Four has, had created uh, memories and a body and was acting as Jean, even though she wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. So Jean comes back from the dead, essentially. Scott, who had moved to Alaska with Madeline Pryor, got married and had a baby, just up and leaves his, his wife and goes off and joins X-Factor without any concern. And this is something that Claremont is still, to this day, in interviews I've heard and read, is really upset about. Really, 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 really upset about. He thinks it really destroyed the character Cyclops. It made him a, a real fucking asshole. <laughs> Pardon my French. I, re- I try not to swear a ton on the podcast, but, you know, a guy that leaves... His his wife and ch- and child in the lurch, and doesn't bother to check in on him. Kind of a kind of a jerk. Kind of a pathetic loser. So that's the character that Cyclops becomes. And Claremont really struggles with accepting him as a hero after he's done these terrible things to his family. Now all this is gonna come out in the wash. And again, these are fictional characters. Uh, but one thing we need to remember. And, and maybe it's easy for some people to understand. Maybe it's not for others. You know, I don't know. If you pour your life and your, 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 every day you're working on characters and you're working on a project and you're working in this reality, the work becomes to, it begins to mean something. 
And yes, these are Marvel-owned characters and properties and blah, blah, blah. We can go on and on and on and on and on and on. And yes, I, I would argue that Marvel does have its right to do whatever the hell it wants with these characters. Marvel owns the characters. Tough, tough luck. That doesn't mean that sometimes story arcs are terrible. It doesn't mean that sometimes editorial decisions are trash. It doesn't mean that they're not wrong. Maybe some people like them. And in all honesty, I'm glad that things shook out out the way they did. There's plenty of material that develops from that one moment of bringing Gene back to life that makes for amazing issues of comics later down the road. This is just a really long-winded way of saying that those sorts of things, those sorts of incidents, editorial decisions have impacts on books. Now, they might not even be direct impacts, but certainly those impacts could affect, events like that could affect Claremont's work on a book like The New Mutants. Uh, I would argue that the last run of issues, last uh, the, the Cloak and Dagger stuff, was most likely an editorial mandate. And my evidence in that for that is that in on the back co- on the cover page you open the front cover the the cover of uh the new mutants issue number 26 if you open that up the very the ad that greets you on the back of the cover is a cloak and dagger uh series ad and it's a buy it, it's announcing a bi-monthly series based on cloak and dagger so what likely was decided by editorial Jim Shooter and others was that they needed to put they wanted to put Cloak and Dagger in a book of some prominence that would get readers reading that, get them used to these characters, and maybe create a fan base for them, and then thus launch a new title and maybe some readers from the New Mutants and X Men would follow that title. And they did that pretty successfully, I would argue. I think Claremont did a great job, masterful job, introducing and building and developing some characters that might have been interesting to follow. So that's probably why we had a three-issue New Mutants run that was almost, for all intents and purposes, a story about Cloak and Dagger last last couple weeks. You know, we've been reviewing three issues and at least two of those are heavily, heavily, heavily cloak and dagger. So that's likely what was going on. Uh, not for certain, but that, that'd be my best guess, just based on some of the stuff we saw, right? There was uh, multiple editors on more than one issue, on two of the issues, which suggests that artwork or something was coming back late or something that had been done was requested to be changed by an editor somewhere so that could have been Ann Nascenti, that could have been Jim Shooter, who knows but there's little bits of evidence here and there in those issues that suggests you know, this is probably what was going on I don't have any hard um, facts to really back that up, I can't say well if you go and read this source that I found uh, you know that that's what it tells us directly. This is what happened here. Um, but we what we do have is we do have some like decent source material that that 
talks broadly about this era, the Jim Shooter era. And uh, one of those, a fantastic source, is Marvel Don Toad's Story uh, by Sean Howe. And that book is fantastic. If you haven't read it and you're really into Marvel comics and you want a kind of quick look behind the scenes, what it was like for, th- for these artists and writers uh, working for the company, that's a great place to start. Um, in that book, it really talks about what it was like to work on a shooter and what some of those mandates would have looked like for for creative teams and how that impacted creative uh, creative teams negatively and positively. Uh, we see the Secret Wars come out of Shooter and his editorial push for that and then the second, uh, the second Secret Wars. And those two crossovers alone had massive impacts on the Marvel Universe. And there's other things that Shooter was doing that, you know, you know, pushed creative teams sometimes in ways that was not always the best. At the same time, as as much as I don't always agree with what Shooter was doing, some of the best uh, X-Men related materials is coming out of Marvel at that time. So, you know, I don't know. What do you say? You know, how do you how do you say that he didn't didn't wasn't some of the stuff he created and some of the stuff he was pushing for? Uh, it's kind of ridiculous, kind of silly, kind of ruined some stuff. But at the same time, there was a golden age for me uh, when when Shooter was editor-in-chief. So I don't know, you know, there's that. Anyways, that's just a really long way of saying I think that's what was going on with Cloak and Dagger. And uh, now that's a pretty long aside. Uh, let's Let's return to the topic. I'll get back into... Uh, the issue at hand, issue number 26, uh, entitled Legion. Thanks. Our story begins on Mer Island. It's off of Scotland. It's it's in the Atlantic Ocean. It's just off of Scotland. And it's it's a place that not, it's not really populated by very many people, except for Moira's uh, lab. Um, and Moira's association with the X-Men is a long-standing relationship. She's, uh, was his old flame. They used to be lovers. Uh, they're no longer lovers, but they remain friends. And she's one of the most, uh, well-renowned, prominent, uh, geneticists in the world. Like she's the top of the line. She, and, and she works with Xavier, to help mutants. Really, that's what her goal is. So they work often together. And, and Muir Island is really strongly tied to the X-Men, uh, to Xavier and the X-Men. And after the Demon Bear saga, you'll remember perhaps two characters, Sharon Freelander, she was a nurse, and Tom Corsi, who was a police officer. Well, in their uh, adventures associated with uh, New Mutants, and their involvement in the Deben Bear story, they were transformed into Native Americans. And they had gone with Moira to Muir Island. Uh, and, and that's where they've stayed. The, Xavier couldn't figure out how to re- bring them back to their ini- original forms. He couldn't return them to uh, a white man and a white woman. And neither could Doctor Strange. So no one's been able to help them. And so they've been hanging out there. They've been working out and helping around Mer Island and just really living in isolation. 
Tom Corsi couldn't go back to his work as a police officer because of this, and, and Sharon really couldn't either. Their lives have been changed forever. And they're trying to figure out how to deal with this. Uh, Tom Corsi, not only has he been changed forever, he visibly changed, physically changed, to look like a Native American. He is also has increased strength. He's able to lift like two times the world record as far as weightlifting goes. He, as he's bench, he's he's deadlifting like two thousand pounds above his head, and hardly breaking a sweat. And he's amazed by this. And Sharon just kind of she doesn't. She's poking fun at him, saying like he's what are you trying to kill yourself? You, you know you're gonna be you're gonna be need in need of my you know me my my you're gonna need my uh, medical training to help you. You've you're gonna have injured yourself so severely lifting all this, and you know he's he's just exploring what his potential is. Really, is what uh, Tom Corsi is doing. Um. You know, and 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 Corsi, he he theorizes that this change has has made them potentially the they're the at peak fitness. They're, they're the best potential outcome of human that human could be. Like they're the best uh, human being physically that they that a human could ever be. Like they're the top. They've reached the the pinnacle of what the human body's capable of. And so as they're having this discussion and, you know, Sharon's kind of really more bemoaning what has been lost. Well, of course, he's pushing the limits to see what he's capable of. Sharon, you know, bemoans the loss of of everything that used to be, you know. And and she's not comfortable looking into the mirror and seeing the face that looks back at her. It's, it's changed forever. And she just hasn't come to terms with it. And as they're having this heart-to-heart uh, after he's done lifting this massive amount of weight, uh, this projection, this almost ghost-like figure appears and tries to communicate with them. Um, and they do realize it's an astral projection similar to what uh, they've seen Xavier do. And it's talking in their head similar to, the tele- so it's telepath. They know that because they've experienced it with Xavier. Um, and he's trying to communicate with them, but they can't, they don't understand what he's saying. And all of a sudden, it let, this, this form lets out a scream, and then it vanishes. And then there's a clang, 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 the alarm's sounding. And Tom and Sharon rush to David's room. His door is sealed, and they can't get it open. It's been locked. Um... And Tom Corsi bashes the door in. His strength allows him just to rip the door basically off its hinges. Um, something he he realizes he would have never been able to do, and his, you know, when he was the 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 cop in in New York. And the what they're greeted by is David Holler screaming for help, uh, and he's levitating off of the bed. He's 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 calling for his mama or his papa, his uncle, 
anybody, somebody save him, please, please. He's just horrified. And things begin flying across the room, coffee cups, smashing into the wall, smashing into uh, Tom Corsi. Just anything that's loose around the room is being thrown around the room. Uh, smashing into the, the two of them. And Corsi instinctively reaches and uh, grabs uh, Sharon to try to shield her from these objects. And they, and they also begin, they know that this is kinetic powers. This is some sort of kinetic power. It's almost like a poltergeist tantrum um, as this stuff is being tossed around the room. And they've got to get out, but they can't get to the door. They've, they've entered the room and, he, and these projectiles are keeping them from leaving. Um, and, and they realize that they're being forced deeper and deeper into the room, closer and closer to uh, David's body. And they're not sure what to do as they're, you know, basically trapped in the room. And what we also know is that David Holler, had, to this point, has been pretty much just uh, a veg, in a vegetative state of state, he's he's unconscious. Uh, there's been signs of autism. Um, nobody really knows what's going on, but they all know that he needs he's desperate in desperate need of help. Um, and to this point, we don't know yet, but uh, Moira hasn't been able to help him, uh, and they're they're realizing that he is using his powers, but he doesn't know how to control them as he's continuing to call for people that he's hurting, that he needs help, that he's burning, that he's scared. You know, he's just screaming his, and, and he's not conscious. And, and Tom, he's huddled around Sharon and he's asking her, you know, what can we do? We got to help him. Isn't there something you can do? You're a nurse. And Sharon tells him she could sedate him, but all of the the stuff to sedate him with is out of the room. And then flames erupt from his hands. And Sharon's startled by this, pointing out that, you know, his hands are burning. And then he begins to laugh. But the laughter isn't in a male's voice. It's in a girl's voice. And they're still huddled there. They don't know what to do. They're they're trapped. And his eye, David's eyes open. And it's terrifying. They don't like how his eyes are looking at him. Looking at them, and and they're terrified. First the demon bear, and now this. It isn't fair. And then we get the title Legion on the cro- across the bottom of the page. And we turn the page. It's a double page splash, and a huge eruption erupts out of the side of the mountain with a big vushum. The next thing we see is a panel below, a long panel below that bigger panel, the panel above, and it's of the blackbird landing in a field. And Moira watches on as the blackbird comes to rest in Scotland, here on Muir Island. And she's not really sure how she's going to explain what is going on to Charles because he doesn't know he has a son and she's been keeping the secret from him and she also knows she can't do anything without his help so a group disembarks from the blackbird and we see obviously Charles Xavier 
and with him is Sean Cassidy. Now, Sean hasn't seen Moira, and Moira hasn't seen Sean in some time, and, and, and Moira was extremely concerned, so she's overjoyed to see him. Uh, in X, Uncanny X-Men 193, Banshee had been abducted by Thunderbird, James Proudstar, the, the brother, the kid brother of John Proudstar, and the Hellions, uh, Empaths and Firestar were involved, and uh, uh, the X-Men were were the target. James James Proud James Proudstar wanted revenge on his brother's death. Uh, all was resolved, and now, as you can tell, you you were seeing this this issue. Uh, Banshee is returning to Moira, and and they're overjoyed. They embrace and kiss, and others that had accompanied. The two, uh, Xavier and, and Sean, were, were new mutants. We have four members of the team. Uh, Danny the leader, Rain Sinclair, uh, Doug Ramsey, and Warlock. Uh, and you may or may not realize this, but Rain Sinclair is the ward of Moira. She has basically essentially adopted Rain and uh, is a mother figure. And, and when Rain sees Moira embrace Sean first, she calls to her, but is left thinking that she's been forgotten uh, as the two, Sean and, and Moira, kiss. Um, she sees Banshee as the one that Moira loves and that, you know, she loves him her him best. And she she kind of becomes sullen, begins to wander off, and, and begins to cry. Um, and, and she's just lost in her thoughts. She's berating herself that she's got friends, but, like, she doesn't have a family. And, yes, she's, je- and, you know, she's jealous, and that's rick- wicked and wrong. Um, but, you know, who who would be happy to see her, you know, it's not like Moira's her mother. And Moira is, you know, goes to Rain. She's, you know, tell, you know, she she wants to know what's going on. Why is Rain walking off? Like, she's happy to see see Rain too. Like, she loves Rain. You know, she this is she sees Rain as her daughter. And even if they're not blood, she she cares for her deeply, and she tells her she shouldn't be crying. That, you know, she's being a fool, kind of. She, you know, she asks her, "Did you think I'd forgotten you, Poppet? Don't be such a wee silly. I was only saving the best for last. Sean's my man, but you're my daughter. You're, you were my own as I love as much as if you were my own flesh and blood." And Reigns embraces her in a hug. She's got tears streaming down her face. Well, all this is going on. Warlock's uh, saying something. He's he's. We see an image bubble in his in his speech bubble, or an image in the speech bubble. It's a blackbird, and he just keeps repeating this over and over and over. And Danny's trying to figure out what the heck is going on here. Uh, what what is what is he saying? And you know, Danny and and Doug Rams here both trying to figure it out. And Danny follows Warlock, who had gone running off. And Warlock is talking to the Blackbird. 
he he thanks the blackbird for bringing them to this land and he says it's a shame that you know the blackbird can't transform you know its body in the same way that warlock can and that he will come back to visit him to ensure that he's not lonely Lo- the blackbird's not lonely and he and he wishes it goodbye uh and the two mutants walk off later that evening danny's recounting this to doug saying you know this is what was this is what can you believe it this is this is what warlock was doing he was talking to their plane and <clears throat> Doug just can't believe it, but Doug's super happy to be here. He's he's so overjoyed. He's like, you know, m- only a month ago I was a regular kid. Now I, then I found out I was a mutant, and uh, my life's been changed forever. I've been running around doing adventures and saving the world, traveling the far side of the galaxy, and he, he just can't wait to see what will happen next. And what happens next is he's introduced to James Maddox. For those of you who know who James Maddox is, or don't know who he is, he is the multiple man. And when Doug shakes his hand, another multiple man appears. Uh, another James Maddox appears. And we find out that Doug had shook his hand too strongly, and the impact of that had caused multiple another uh, Jamie Maddox to appear. And Rain at this point, or Danny says at this point to Doug, some adventure, huh, Doug? can't wait to see what'll happen next just love that the way she chides him um anyways this this revelry is continues but moira and uh xavier have something more serious to talk about and moira recounts the the alarm from the night previous how the alarm had gone off and tom corsi and sharon friedlander had gone to the lab to see what was going on and then there was an explosion that leveled the the lab and Xavier asks if the two of them had been killed, and Moira shows them, shows Xavier the med bay where Sharon and Tom are both uh, under observation. And she says they weren't even touched physically. There's no damage. Nothing happened that harmed them physically. But their bodies uh, are are in a catatonic state, um, even though they're they're unharmed. Uh, their minds are completely gone. And he asks who had done this. And out of the shadows steps Gabby Haller. And she says, I suppose, in a sense, Charles, I suppose I am. And Charles is startled, obviously, spins around and sees her. And he tells her that she's lovely as ever. And he, she calls him a liar. They're flirting a little bit. And they get down to business. They embrace in a hug. And uh, they get down to business. And she tells him it's her son, David. Moira's patient was the reasons that that he was summoned and that she tells him a little bit about his history. He's an autistic. Uh, He's been that way since the age of 10. And he's in a catastrophe. He's withdrawn from reality um, completely. Uh, No one has been able to help him. Nobody, even, even Moira. And she's tried so many things to help him and and charles asks you know why why was there outraged why didn't you reach out to me why didn't you contact me you know i could help the boy and she tells him there's personal reasons that she didn't want to involve him and but with the recent events and with moira really not making any headway she had no choice this, he's the last resort 
and he and she he tells her he should have been the first and he realizes there's something she's not telling him and he also is unwilling to mind probe her to figure find those answers even though he thinks the answer to the, the stuff that she's not telling him is the key to what's happening um he's gonna have to figure it out but he'll have to figure it out differently because She'll have to tell him or he'll have to figure it out another way because he's not willing to mind probe her. He, he, he respects her too much uh, for what they had. There's too much respect there, and, and that would be wrong, he decides. Um, and he says he, he does tell her he'll try his best to help David. Um, another side note that I should probably mention here is Xavier had been attacked in uh, – Uncanny X-Men, I believe, 193, 192 in there. And he was beaten by students. Uh, he had been beaten by students, severely beaten by students, uh, to, to death. He was brought back to life by the healer in the Morlock Tunnels. Uh, and um, he is really struggling at this point. Um, and... Uh, you know he's he's not looking too hot. People notice that pretty regularly that he looks pretty wore down. He looks pretty tired, um, and that's all a result of the the beating he took. Um, and pretty soon we're going to have some other psychic uh, feedback and stuff that is going to involve um, the Secret Wars crossover, Secret Wars Two crossover. I believe that'll be coming up, and I believe we're starting to have some of the Beyonders interference. Uh, is beginning to start now as well. So those are things that are going to be expecting Xavier um, throughout these stories to come. Uh, so uh, we'll, I'll try to mention them when they're relevant. Uh, but that has been going on as well. Um, so yeah. Elsewhere, Snowy Valley, in the Berkshire Mountains of Western Massachusetts, the Manchester Academy, a private high school, one of the premier in the nation. We see a young man, and he's talking to the secretary. He's about to go in to see uh, Emma Frost, the president. And she's also the white queen of the Hellfire Club. She has strong ties to the Hellfire Club. The Hellfire Club, for anyone that hasn't been listening to the podcast or doesn't read X-Men or has not uh, no knowledge of the Hellfire Club is a group of mutants, some mutants, some humans, who really their goal is power and to rule the world through power. And they see mutants as tools in which, uh, as as weapons to wage uh, in a power struggle. And the, that's their goal. And so the Hellions that are students of the Massachusetts Academy um yeah, they are essentially weapons to be wielded in the future uh, by the Hellfire Club. So, Emmanuel De La Rosa, De La Rocha, sorry, is directed to go in and speak with Emma. And Emma is not happy with him. She uses her telepathic powers, her psi talents, to basically give him to, to just ex- assault his brain. And she, you know, he screams in pain uh, and turning away from her. Uh, and she's mad. Uh, he he had manipulated Firestar's emotions um, <clears throat> as well as Thunderbird and had them go after the X-Men. Um, and for details to that, we can look at 193, which I already talked about, and the Firestar miniseries, which 
we might have to take a look at that ourselves on this podcast. Anyways, before we get into the Firestar miniseries in a later episode, let's continue with this. Um, she Basically, she's upset because Firestar has left the Hellions um, and isn't coming back. So it's an asset that, that Emma Frost was really trying to groom. She saw great potential in Firestar. And in a space of a day, what he had done, what, M, what um, uh, Manuel Alfonso de Rodrigo de la Rocha had done is basically undo a day, in a day, years worth of work that Emma had put forth. And she's obviously extremely upset with him. He he tries to argue that he meant no harm, and and she calls him out for his for this lie, uh, telling him that you know he he's playing games and he just likes to hurt people. He was playing with Thunderbird uh, and and Firestar and the X Men. He was just enjoying himself. He takes pleasure in other people's suffering and pain. And she tells him he's been a troublemaker from the beginning, a misery to your teammates and little and an utter disappointment to me and i boy have had enough and emmanuel his powers are the manipulations of people's emotions his code name is empath and so he attempts to turn emma's rage into lust for himself and through the dialogue in the panels and what is depicted on the page it looks as though he succeeded emma's face begins to soften. I'm just going to read what, read these panels. So, Majesty, have I, in terms of had enough. Nobody addresses a de la Rocha in such a manner. We do not obey. We are not lackeys. We command. Let us see if your vaunted side talents can protect you from my empathic powers. As I turn your rage to love and we see in you know Emma's face having softened and her lips parting little bubbles with hearts pink hearts float in front of her eyes she looks as though she's just gazing into someone she truly cares for and he tells her that he supposes she did not expect such resistance from him but he did not expect so little resistance from her and as they're just, she reaches for his tie and pulls him close. They look as though they're about to embrace in a kiss. And she lifts him up in the air by his tie, throwing him back, calling him an arrogant fool, thinking that he could beat her so easily. And he tur- she turns what he had said to her, dear darling Manuel. He had called her dear darling Emma to test the limits of both. He, she's testing their powers. She was testing the limits of his powers and his ambition. And he, he tell, she tells him, I can kill you. I could snap your neck right now. But instead, she decides she's going to place basic psych, psychic blocks on his mind so he can't use his powers. And as she walks away, leaving him on the ground, like leaned up against his desk, her desk, struggling to breathe, she tells him that this is his final warning. That, you know, if he pushes this flower, the, 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 
the message she's trying to convey to him is that she will, she'll have no problem killing him. Meanwhile, on the mainland of Scotland, on the western coast, the new mutants are walking along the docks, and uh, Doug is taking tons of pictures. Rain te- uh, Danny Moonstar teases him a little bit about it, and he's like, I'm taking as many as I want. Meanwhile, Warlock's in his transmode form. You know, he's the alien form. He has, he's not in his human form. And they warn him, you know, Xavier, when we're out, has told us, you know, you need to stay in the human form. And he, and he tells him, I forget, you know, I forget that, you know, like, thanks for reminding me. And he does. He transforms into a human being, uh, a, a, a likeness of a human. As they wonder, as they notice the fleet has come in, because all these seagulls are flying around, looking for food, Warlock is just in awe, and he reaches out towards a bird, and Danny sees him beginning to transmute, trans, like that he's, his hand has become the trans mode, organic, the, 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 like had transformed into the alien hand, essentially, right, his, his techno-organic design and the rest of his body looked human and as he's reaching out to the bird Danny knows he's gonna you know try to touch it and so she reaches for his hand and at the same time he makes contact with the bird and the bird transforms it turns into a trans you know the the virus infects the bird and it it turns into a techno-organic construct and uh, and warlock absorbs its life glow that's how he consumes food and Danny, you know, pulls her hand away. She's like, oh, God, I'm good. And, you know, thinks she's been infected. And, you know, she's freaking out. And Warlock begins to freak out. And Doug tells him to calm down. And Warlock says, I'm so sorry. You know, he apologizes. He's like, you're my first friends. I don't want to do anything to harm you. Don't worry. You know, you're fine. And what we find out is he decides what he infects. So it's not just his mere contact that is going to infect the new mutants. He picks what he's going to infect with the transmog virus. So Danny's okay. But, you know, and Rain and is uh, talking with Warlock about reanimating that bird. And, and she thinks that would be so great. But this is all interrupted by Reverend Craig, who says, Rain Sinclair needs to leave. You know, she's a spawn of Satan and he's got a mob with him. Of course, he walks around apparently with mobs all the time. But Reverend Craig, no one else in the group had ever met. And Danny stands up to him, tells him, you know, leave her alone. We're minding our own business. Let's just leave us alone. And he says, you're all damned to hell. You all need to leave because you're anyone that can, can, can torts with her is, is a spawn of Satan as well. And Doug just says, we need to leave. Like, just leave this jerk alone we shouldn't we don't need to bother with him he's not worth our time and they do they all they all leave we haven't seen reverend craig though however since since he had been chasing her in graphic novel number one his hatred is still his attitude towards rain hasn't changed at all he hates her just as much as he had from the start um but this is where that section ends nothing at this point comes of reverend craig Meanwhile, back on Mirror Island, Xavier tries to reach David Haller using his telepathic abilities. He also senses in this moment that the new mutants are upset, especially Rain Sinclair from what happened on the mainland. But he also can't 
use he can't spare his abilities he can't s- divide his uh his consciousness right now he's going to need it all to help david and he senses that they're fine that things will be okay that they're not in danger so he he focuses on the task at hand he's confronted we see his astral form and he's confronted in the psi uh ast- astral plane by a of that is representative of a, of david's mind by a wall a site psionic block that's represented as a brick wall and he and he's trying to decide how to proceed he he knows this is just similar to what he experienced when he was trying to help gabriel holler but in his youth he didn't understand what he was doing he just forced his way through he did break through the barrier and he helped her but in doing so it forced her to relive her past everything that she'd feared and was so disgusted by her her horrible childhood the death of her parents the degradation of her spirit and soul and he doesn't want to do that to david because his Gabriel Haller has always resented him, he feels, for what had happened, for, for how he'd helped her, even though it had, had, had freed her from her psionic uh, prison, it did her, it, she relived all of that. And so as he's pondering, and he begins to push through this wall, he is confronted by an Arabic face. And it's trying, it's screaming at him, but he can't tell what it's saying. Its speech is, is foreign to him. And he, he's not understanding what it's saying. And all of a sudden, fire bursts from the mouth of this, the face that's, in, that's been formed in the wall. It shoots Xavier out back. His astral body goes flying back into his human body, which is sitting in a chair. And Xavier's body, along with the others in the room with Xavier, fly out. You know, are knocked back as well. They they begin to gather themselves, and David Huller is laughing maniacally. And this panel is this page is absolutely stunning. Like it's a beautiful page. It's a great example of of how fantastic Zinkevich is on on this book, especially when it comes to his ability to depict what uh, is occurring in. When when characters are using psi power, their 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 psionic powers, their their telepathic powers, Xavier's body on the astral plate, and how it interacts with David's mind, and and then once it is fire, pushed back into his body, this is all amazing. He uses a di- image of David Haller sitting in to split the page to break up his panels. It's it's like a panel line. He uses David Huller's body that way. It's it's masterfully done. I think it's a fantastic example of what Zinkevich is able to do. Um, but anyways, they as the the team Moira and Gabby and Xavier gather themselves. Moira points out that it's it's as though he's mocking them. And and Xavier says no, and I yes and no. It, it, the voice is mocking him, but it's not David. I sensed another presence, an alien psychic force within David's mind. It's as though it's not David. It's it's, it's like another entity altogether, an alien entity. And Xavier is also struggling at this point. He's panting, breathing heavily. 
And he remembers that he has been warned, like I said, he was been beaten severely, killed, essentially, and was brought back by the healer. And Callisto had warned him that he better not push himself too far. His, he, the strain could kill him, and his heart is just racing. And so he's, he's trying to bring his body under control because he, he's been taxed. He's pushed himself probably too far. And he, and he doesn't want anyone else to know because they're all depending upon him. So typical of our X-Men characters. When they're struggling and they need help, they don't let anyone know. They'll bear it on their own shoulders. And that's what Xavier does here. Elsewhere, thousands of miles away, to the south and west, we find Lee Forrester on Octopusheim in the Bermuda Triangle. She's awakened from sleep by mag- a scream. She looks, she knows it's Magneto. She goes to him. In the room, the building, the whole building, the whole island feels like it's shaking. Pieces of metal and objects are flying around the room and the bed begins to levitate. She knows she doesn't have much time as the bed breaks through a window and goes out above the the seawall and the ocean as it crashes below. She jumps to the bed, getting on it. She knows she's on the bed next to Magneto, who's still sleeping. He's having a nightmare, and she knows she's got to wake him. She shakes him. He wakes to find her. He says, you know... He's a little starter. He says her name, and she says, you are having a nightmare. I'll tell you about it. And then they fall. And he tells her not to worry as he prevents the bed and themselves from being injured. It slams with a whoomp to the ground. The water crashes against the rocks. And she says, you know, she asks him what he was dreaming about. What what, what was going on? What was it? Um, you know, asks if he's all right. It was some dream. And he tells her it was a it was of a time and place, I thought, forever buried. And she says she'd never heard such desolation in his voice. And she asks what happened, and he tells her death, resurrection. And he he tells her that she saved his life tonight and that's twice now he owes her and the two of them kiss and Claremont (laughs) his narration of this I'm just going to read it because I think it is so freaking brilliant I love it the first kiss is tentative both gripped by shy nervousness neither willing to admit to the second is less so the third not at all And when at last Magneto sleeps, Lee tastes salt water on his cheeks and wonders if it's salt spray or tears. Oh, I love it. I'm sorry. I just really, 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 really like it. Uh, Just love the the purpleness of those prose. Um, Amazing. Amazing. I love it. Um, I'm really a big fan of Magneto kind of becoming more, you know, more more sympathetic, right? It makes his character more understandable, makes him more relatable, makes him more complex, and I think more, you know, much more interesting villain as a result. Uh, And I also really like the developing budding romance. Uh, Well, it is full-bore romance that has developed between Lee Forrester and Magneto. 
Uh, for anyone that didn't know, and I don't know if I brought it up before, I think I have, but it, Lee Forrester and, and Cyclops, Scott Summers, had run around earlier in X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, uh, after he had left the X-Men. And they had a romance um, that was eventually ended uh, because Scott's hard to love. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so here we have Lee and Magneto kind of figuring each other out. It's, it's pretty fantastic. Meanwhile, Mere Island, Xavier sits in front of a fi- roaring fire, and Gabby approaches him. She's rubbing his shoulders. His, he's super tense. The stress is getting to him, obviously, of the situation. And he still has no more answers than he had before. And they have a discussion. Um, and it's about the old days. You know, he's impressed with her. He's really impressed. He's always been attracted to Gabby. And he tells her that, you know, she's done well for herself. And she admits to that, yes, she has. And she's super ambitious still. She, she foresees herself as being the, a foreign minister, possibly. Um, and, and maybe prime minister of Israel. And he tells her that, yeah, that, that, that seems like a, it sounds good. I like the sound of that. So he's in support of that. Now, this, you know, he 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 finally yeah, he breaches breaches a subject that's a personal subject, and he asks why she hasn't married. She tells him that she's only met two people that she would have committed to. One of them's dead, and the other one had other commitments. And the other one with the other commitments is obviously Charles Xavier. And this prompts Charles to say it was criminal of him to take advantage of her. And I'm just going to read these word balloons because this deserves attention. Uh, and it deals with Xavier and consent and his uh, what happened with Gabby. You were my patient, Gabby. My power gave me access to every corner of your being. There is no greater trust, especially since it was not freely given. I forced myself into your mind and I abused it. She says, nonsense. We both found comfort we desperately needed in each other's arms. However guilty you may feel, Charles, I have no regrets. Charles, a telepath can play God. You have no idea how tempting that is. I can change thoughts, twist memories, destroy personalities, erase it utterly, and recreate it any way I choose. I tell myself I use these abilities solely to do good, only to remember that my arch-rival, Magneto uses those same words to justify his actions. And Gabby tells him that, yeah, you know, when I first, when she really came to grips and fully understood what he'd done, she was terrified of him. And when he went back to America, that's why she didn't want to see him and didn't write him. And She she doesn't think he did anything wrong, but there's this little bit of doubt that's there, and it's always been there. And that little bit of doubt has made it hard to engage with Charles. But she pushes this aside. She says, this isn't what we're here to deal with. You know, what's really important is my son, and I don't care. I don't need answers to this. I don't need to know if you 
manipulated me or did something inappropriate. That's not important right now. What I need is my, my son needs help. Um, you know, she's willing to move mountains. She'll fight anything she has to to save her son's life now because he's hurting people. And she's also been told by Myra, Moira what happened to Moira's son, Proteus, and how the, the X-Men, they couldn't help him, and he was harming people, and they had to kill him. And she doesn't want that fate for David. And Xavier assures her, if there's anything that he can do, he'll figure it out. If, he can, if there's hope for David, he'll find a way. And he asks her, at this point, I'm just going to read this line. Now tell me, all about him, especially the trauma that made him autistic. I I don't know. Um, I don't have extensive expertise in like the definition and how people develop autism. Uh, most people I think that I know with that uh, that are that have autism that are that are autistic. Uh, were born autistic. Like, it wasn't trauma that created autism in them. Uh, they just were autistic. Traumas can manifest uh, reactions to events for somebody with autism. But, like, they, as far as I understand, are not made autistic through trauma. I might be wrong. Uh, I don't have a great knowledge on autism, so I will say that. So I would, it's, it's too bad that we have in this book a character like David who is called autistic and represents people with autism. So a character that like, you know, people with with autism could look to uh, and find in these pages, uh, but is not really very well done uh, in terms of how they're autistic or how they relate to autism. Um, I'm going out kind of on a limb, and I'm not super comfortable doing that. I, I just kind of question how they handle autism in this book, and, and the fact that they've labeled a character that probably isn't autistic as, as autism, with autism. Um, you know, like, I can look through any comic book for myself. I'm a white male, white man, right? Like, generic is you know easy as it comes. I look in comics and I find examples of white men everywhere in, in comics. Um, it's not hard for me to find a character that I can relate to in terms of my sexual orientation, my my gender, and my uh, race. Like those are readily available in, in any book I pick up. Really easy to find. When we start mixing in other races and other um, characteristics, it becomes harder and harder to find those. So when we, when we talk about people with disabilities, um, whether they be mobility issues, um, things like autism, brain, gen, brain injuries, or other sorts of um, things that, that society has labeled as making someone disabled, 
it, it becomes harder and harder to find characters that represent those people. And so when they do appear, I think it's super important, I would argue, to do those characters justice and, and to do their disabilities justice by making sure that the information presented is accurate. That being said, this is 1980, let's see, 1980, 1984, 80, 85, 1985. And that's when this book was created, published. Um, I don't know what the level of understanding um, of autism was in science. It was probably higher than in general public, uh, just amongst the general public. So, you know, there is that. But I do think that onus is on creators to to do justice to characters like that because, you know, people are looking to this and consuming this material. And if this is the only information they ever see about autism, you know, you want to give something that's accurate. In my, that's just my opinion. There might be other people that disagree with that, and that's, you know, your choice. That's my opinion. I mean, we're going to get into this as this book continues, because we have a character who, uh, Roberta da Costa, is a minority character, uh, a Brazilian, a dark, dark-skinned Brazilian uh, male who becomes lighter-skinned as the uh, as the book continues, as he is taken into X-Force, as he is taken to other, uh, other material, as he is put into the movies, he is almost completely whitewashed. You know, uh, that's problematic. We have two characters in this book already who are Native American. They were white. They were trained, changed by a demon bear and became Native American. Right? Some of these racial issues... You know, as a white man, it's super easy for me to say, oh, this doesn't matter. It doesn't affect me. As a white man, it's super easy. That's the privilege, that I don't have to look at that. I don't have to think about it. I don't need to address it. It doesn't affect my day-to-day life because I don't live it. That's, that's the fact of my life, right? And there might be people listening to this that say, this isn't something you want to hear. And that's, you know, your choice, but that's the reality that I live with, right? Like, there are certain things I will never confront, I never have to look at, and I never have to deal with. And that is privilege. That's why it's privilege. So, one of the privileges I get, being a white male, is that I have multiple, multiple examples of white men throughout all media. That's not always the case for every person in this country. And I think that's, you know, I think that's worth acknowledging, accepting. And when somebody's doing work to try to remedy that, I applaud them for that because I know what these characters have meant to me. I know what it's meant to me to have examples of what a white man is and what can be like how powerful that has been for me. And so I applaud it when other people are trying to do it for other people because everybody, I think, should have that that, um, 
that readily available to them. So creatives, creators that are out there doing that, thank you. Keep doing the great work you're doing. Um, as far as David goes, I did want to touch on this. We're almost done with this story, but I think this is a good time to talk about it. No, maybe we'll just wait till the end. I'll talk about it at the end. Let's just, let's get into this, conclude this arc. I did just have a huge aside. Let's conclude the arc. As Gabby tells her story to Xavier, Rain climbs out of her bed. She sneaks out the window. It's cold. And as she drops from this two stories above the ground, she transforms into her uh, transitional wolf-human hybrid form. The best of both uh, abilities are, are available, and she lands effortlessly. She then shifts into her wolf's form, and she bounds across the, the open air ground towards Moira's lab. She is transfixed by the beauty around her, Everything is just a world of lights and colors and sounds, and it's awe-inspiringly beautiful and amazing, and she's captivated by it. How can this beauty be evil? But she's been told, since she was a child, she'd been told by the man that taught her about God and brought her up, Reverend Craig, he told her that she's evil and that this is sinful. But how can this much joy be sinful? But with all, every time she feels emboldened to challenge those thoughts, she's confronted by, by the fact that if, if this is good and Reverend Craig's evil, then what does that say about her upbringing and everything she believes in? It just leaves her confused, further and further confused. And this page is such a great rain development page. It so well, in my opinion, explains her struggles, like she has a man that taught her about her, gave her her religious upbringings. The same man that claims connection and, and, and to have the best interests of God at hand. So he's taught her all about God, told her how to be a good Christian, how to, how to be a good person. And he's saying, because you're a mutant and because you can do this, because you're a werewolf, your, your spawn of Satan. So that has challenged her. And when she gets past that, as she grows past that, and she begins to accept, you know, these are good talents. I've done so many good things with my mutant abilities. How can that be bad? It then circles back and challenges the groundwork, her faith. Something has to be wrong here. And she doesn't know what. It just crushes her with confusion. She doesn't have the answers. And so she stands in the doorway of Moira's lab. Moira finally senses her. And she asks what she's doing up so past, up, doing up. It's past her bedtime and rain. She's uncertain. She doesn't really have an answer, but she's just, it's, it's such a beautiful panel. Like she's kind of hugging herself. She's kind of shrunken in. Her shoulders are like turned in. And, and she looks as though she's quivering. Her eyes are closed. And she just looks just pitiful. And Moira says, you know, opens her arms. She turns towards her, opens her arms. And she tells her, cuddle close and give us a hug. And Rain says she feels so silly. She doesn't want to be bothering her, you know, 
David's in, in need, but she does go and and Moira embraces her and holds, and they and their heads foreheads touch. I mean, it's just this beautiful, 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 beautiful panel. These panels are absolutely stunning. And Moira tells her to you know, David's her patient. He's important to to her, but that Rain's her daughter, and she's going to continue to con- keep telling her that until Rain believes her. You and Sean share my heart, is what she tells her. And that she's always going to make time for rain. And when and when rain finally begins to stop telling her, Moira, her problems, turns to someone else. It's gonna, it's gonna hurt her just like it hurts every mother. And. In this tender moment, Rain says, I love you, lady. I love you, mommy. And my response was, I love you. And the you is on another panel, and it's question marks, because Rain begins to growl, and she's transformed into a transitional wolf-human hybrid form. And she's growling. She turns, and says we're not alone and there she's right uh this arabic face has appeared this astro astral form arabic face and it's trying to communicate with them using psi speech it's saying you know it's it's giving them a warning and doesn't understand why they can't hear or, or aren't hearing him and don't understand him and rains says she's hearing the the words but they don't make sense and and Moira explains that it's it's Arabic and she doesn't know where David learned this how how can he be speaking Arabic she she does contact Xavier telling you know with the warning that something's up something's not right but before Xavier gets to the lab as he's running there frantically trying to reach Moira <coughs> reaching out with his 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 mental abilities there's an explosion the lab explodes with a boom and that's the end of this issue the next issue is into the abyss um as i said i did want to talk a little bit about david now david people have been i've i've read reviews and comments about david and they make sense right like People aren't intrigued, as intrigued by him as maybe they were about, like, the Demon Bear, right? That was a great story arc. Um, and the thing that people dislike, I think, some about, like, this arc and, and later arcs with David is that he's just such a one-dimensional character. He's kind of boring. He's not well-developed. Uh, and it's... My, my take, yeah, you know, there's some truth to that, like... I, I love this book because more because of the story and how uh, Sienkiewicz pr- portrays the art in this book. You know, the, especially when it's we're use, we're talking about astral projection and you know the the cyba, you know the telepathic engagement of Xavier and and David Haller. Like those are brilliant. I think and those moments are amazing and they look so cool. So like that's a really big huge plus to me and the story's good like don't get me wrong like it's one of my favorite parts 
of this, you know, of the Sienkiewicz run. You know, I'd say it's Demon Bear Saga is my favorite than, than the Legion stuff. And that's two of my favorite, very favorite arcs in all of New Mutants, right? And, and when they relaunch New Mutants in its third volume, third series, whatever you want to call it, I don't, you know, it's, you get into that. But uh, it, it's that web, I think it's the web run, if I'm not mistaken. But the very first issues open with they're interacting, they're dealing with Legion. The team comes back together and they, and they have to go and do, deal with Legion. And I really liked that. I loved the callback. Um, we're going to also have a Legion quest, but still, he just doesn't really get the attention. Um, and I think there's reasons for his the difficulty with de- dealing with Legion. There's there's a couple things, right? He's chaotic. He's super like not like he's not all good. At least at this time, he's not he's not bad and he's not good. He's just this neutral like th- person. He doesn't have a set story. He doesn't have much of anything developed. So whatever Claremont puts on page is what we get. And, like, we're going to see this going forward, that he's not, like, ever on the side of good. He just, like, causes havoc and wreaks havoc. So, like, he never gets anything pinned down to attribute to his character uh, very soundly. Um... Not that that's not interesting. It, it is interesting, but it just doesn't give him any strong ties to any X team. So he never becomes a member of the teams. He's never like a ally that's brought in occasionally to help. Um, he's also extremely like powerful, and like depending on who's writing him at the time, like he just can like, depending on who's in control of his psyche, he may or may not have. He may or he may have different power sets. So he becomes uber powerful which makes him hard, like, how do you interact with that? How do you have that consistently in your book, right? Like, it just gets to be hard to write. Um, the fact that he may or may not be autistic, and how do you depict that on page, and is that respectable? And, you know, get into all that. It's just, he's got multiple personalities. How do you depict that on the page? All of this becomes extremely hard to work with. Not to say it hasn't been done, it can't be done, and it hasn't been done well. Uh, we did get, like, X-Men Legacy. We've got the Legion TV show. All of these things are helping to bring uh, this character, shaping this character, and making him more interesting, I would argue. But I think at this point, and later through the 90s, and up into the 2000s, early 2000s, character's just not really well-developed. And I think writers don't want to deal with that, uh, especially in the 90s. It's just not the thing you're going to see. You're going to see a lot of relaunches, a lot of reboots, and a lot of, like, fight, fight, fight. And Astral Planes, I mean, that's not... You're not going to get... It's just not... It's not what they were probably looking to do in the 90s, I would argue. Uh, You can do some cool things with that, but... Uh, the 90s was about fights and explosions, and that's not what you get with David Haller. Uh, and <clears throat> so, like, he's just not, he doesn't lend himself, he didn't lend himself well to the 90s, that character, I would argue, um, in terms of what they were doing. I think all you have to go is, do is go look through some of Jim Lee's work on the early X-Men stuff, uh, Protasios or uh, Rob Liefeld to really understand why they're running around with big guns and big guns don't really work with uh, 
with a, a a character that spends most of its time on the 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 astral plane you know not that there can't be cool stories that happen there but uh not all the characters wolverine doesn't usually run around in the astral plane i mean it's just more work it's a lot more work how do you how do you get your characters into that stuff when you can just have them thrown at magneto um so that would be my argument as to why he's you know had such a difficult row you know difficult time finding a place in the x universe plus he's not all bad like he's just not a bad guy he's not a villain he's not like he's not even like magneto magneto's got a purpose for what he does um whether he's villain or good right his his ideal his ideology is that mutants whether they be supreme you know superior to humans or not whether he's arguing that or not he is arguing it through most of it that like humans shouldn't be murdering mutants and i will do whatever i have to do to save mutant lives that's typically the stance that magneto's taking david holler's not taking that kind of a stance ever <laughs> you know the one time that Muir islands attacked by the reavers he doesn't even like help the X-Men that are assembled there, the, the ragtab group of heroes that are trying to save uh, Morlock children, like, he lets Sunder get shot in the back, right? He doesn't do anything to really help. He's just chaotic. He just causes chaos and, like, runs off. Like, he doesn't do anything really to help uh, in terms like that. Like, he just is, whatever, fly by night. Um, so he, he's not really labeled as anything good or bad. He's just chaos. So that makes him hard to ingrain into a story. But like I said, I think they're doing better work with David Holler's character now. And I think that's a good thing. I know it's a good thing. So I think his character gets better as time goes on. And I, and I don't hate this. I, I actually really like it. Like I said, it's one of my top two for probably favorite stories in New Mutants. So I put it up pretty highly. Uh, and yeah, we're going to get to see some cool, more cool artwork and how... Zinkevich depicts the astral plane and telepathic abilities. It's really kind of neat to see that. Uh, so, yeah. Next week, we will dive in to issue number 27, The Abyss, Into the Abyss. So, uh, yeah. Until then, keep reading those comics. James Explores the New Mutants, as is always, recorded in Iowa City, Iowa, and is produced by myself using the Anchor app. New episodes are published every Wednesday and can be found wherever podcasts are available. You can reach the podcast on Twitter at ExploreNewMutant, via email at ExploreTheNewMutants at gmail.com. Visual companions to the episodes are available on Facebook and Instagram by searching James Explores the New Mutants. Another cool way to reach the podcast is via the Anchor Messenger service. It allows you, the listeners, to record minute-long messages that I can then place directly into the episodes. It's a really cool way for you to get involved. So send me questions, comments, and I'll add them to the episode. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week. We'll get into issue 27 and the next issue of The Legion Saga. Thanks. <laughs>